Good morning, church. It's good to be with you in here this morning. Uh, glad that you give me the opportunity to preach in here once in a while. And uh, great to hear the band in person. Uh, we have some, some, we're blessed with some wonderful talent in this church, aren't we? It's uh, good to be with you this morning. Yeah. <clears throat> so, as I was growing up, from, uh, from about the time when I was about 10 years old and, and all through the rest of grade school and, and high school, Sunday evening at 8 p.m. meant one thing in the Wagner household, Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> the popular television series starring Agatha, uh, Angela Lansbury as uh, Jessica Fletcher, mystery writer, writer of mystery novels who solves crimes in real life. I always thought it was odd that murders followed her everywhere she went. I have never once in my life gone on vacation and stumbled upon a murder. But this happened to her on a weekly basis. A little bit suspicious. <laughs> Nevertheless, the show was a hit in our house, something that the whole family could watch together. My parents were both mystery fans. My mom read every Agatha Christie novel. My parents watched Poirot and Miss Marple on PBS. We had all of the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew books in our house. My dad turned me on to Columbo. Now, a few of you have no idea what any of this means. <laughs> the rest of you are calculating in your brains how old I am. That's okay. I've always loved mysteries. I'm intrigued by the challenge of trying to figure out the answer before the big reveal. But you know, for as much as I enjoy mysteries, as much as I watch them or read them, I don't think there has ever been a single time when I actually figured out the answer on my own. Not a one. Not even Scooby-Doo. Whenever they pulled the mask off the villain, I was shocked. <laughs> Not old man Jenkins. <laughs> I enjoy re-watching a mystery movie after I've already seen it and all has been revealed. The second time through, I can pick up on all of the clues that I failed to pick up on the first time. The clues were there all along. The answer may have been obvious elementary, as Sherlock Holmes would say, but I didn't understand the significance of the clues until it was all tied together for me. I think there's a reason that so many of us enjoy a good mystery. I think it's because there is a mystery at the heart of our very being. Creation itself is a mystery. Life is a mystery. Where did we come from? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there order instead of chaos? Who's behind it all? How did life come about? And what about love? What about death? What happens to us after we're gone from this place? What does it all mean? These are questions that humankind has wrestled with for as long as we have been around. Every culture in one way or another has sought answers to these questions. That's pretty much where religion comes from, trying to provide some answers to ultimate questions. And every society that has ever existed has had some form of religion, some manner of trying to unravel the mysteries. Some answers have been more satisfying than others. Some have been more obscure and esoteric. 
Despite all attempts, though, life and creation and the destiny of humankind remained a mystery until Jesus came and the Apostle Paul. Paul makes a very bold claim in his letter to the Colossians. He writes to the Colossians that he has been commissioned by God to make the word of God fully known. Fully known, to reveal it all. And then he writes about this word of God, calling it the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. In other words, the truth of God, which has always been there, but has always been hidden from our view, the questions of existence that have plagued humankind from the very beginning, the answers which people have been searching for all along, this mystery has finally been revealed by God to his saints, to his saints, to the apostles, to all those who believe in Jesus Christ. Christ is the answer. Christ is the revelation. Christ is the one who unravels the mysteries for us so that God's truth can be fully known. That's a very bold claim. This idea that we have been given the answers to this thing that has been a mystery to everyone else. It's a controversial claim, too. The idea that there is one answer to the overarching questions of humanity. It's much more in vogue today to say that there are as many answers as there are people. That everyone can come to their own answer. Your truth is as good as my truth. There is nothing objective, no one single truth. Well, let me continue to play with the analogy of a mystery novel. You can read that mystery novel for yourself, and as you make your way through that novel, based on your experience of the characters, your take on the clues, you might be absolutely convinced that the butler did it. But then you get to the end of the novel, and it turns out the butler didn't do it. It was the disgruntled stepdaughter all along. But you don't like that ending. You're still sold on the butler theory, so you decide the end of the novel is wrong. In fact, you decide that the author of the novel is wrong. You go to a book signing, and you go up to the author, and you tell him, you got the ending wrong. It wasn't actually the butler. It, it, it was the butler who did it, not the disgruntled stepdaughter. The author would look at you like you're nuts. Probably start looking around for security. The author is the only one who gets to decide how the story goes. You can have your theories, you can have your opinions, but that doesn't make them true. The only one who can reveal the truth behind all the mysterious bits and pieces of the story is the one who put them there in the first place. There is a mystery built into life. The Bible doesn't shy away from that. But there is also an author of life. 
there is a God who brought it all into existence and pieced it all together and who knows how the story turns out because he's the one who wrote it. He has placed clues all around us. Since the beginning of time, there have been clues as to who God is and what he wants from us. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes about God's judgment upon people who lived prior to the revelation of the law and the coming of Christ. He writes, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. What Paul is saying there is that the mystery and wonder of creation itself is a clue to the reality of God. The innate sense of right and wrong that we all have within us, the human conscience that has been shared by every culture that has ever existed, is a clue that God has certain standards for us of how we ought to live. These things are true apart from any particular religious com commitments. They can be seen by anyone. But the particulars of who God is, the specifics of what God wants from us, the details of how we can live in proper relationship with him and with one another, these are things that can be fully known only when they are revealed by the one who set it all in motion. It's not just that Christ was the answer all along, although that too is true, but that Christ was the author all along. Christ is the word of God through whom the world was created. Christ is the Lord of life through whom life itself came into being. Christ is the author of salvation, the one who brings us back to God and unites us with one another. It is all about Jesus, and it always has been. Now, you may not like that ending. You may look around and decide you want to piece the clues together in a different way, come to a different conclusion. You may come to your own truth, but that doesn't make it true. God, the one who spoke creation into existence. God, the one who breathed life into humankind. God, the one who set it all in motion and holds all the pieces together. God is the one who knows what is true because he is the one who made what is true. And he revealed that truth to the world when he sent his son, Jesus Christ. In our story today from Acts, I know I'm supposed to be in the book of Acts. I'm getting there. <laughs> in our story from Acts, Paul is in Athens. He got separated from Silas and Timothy at their previous stop. Paul had gone on to Athens, and he sent instructions that they should rejoin him as soon as possible. Our passage then starts in Acts 17, verse 16. 
while Paul was waiting in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now there's two different groups of people here that Paul was arguing with. The Jews and devout persons, that was one group. Devout persons refers to Gentiles who believed in the Jewish God. They had not taken steps of actually becoming Jewish themselves, but they believed in the Jewish God. They worshiped with the Jews to whatever extent that was allowed. Those who happened to be in the marketplace, that's a different group. These are Athenians who had no relation to the Jews or, or belief in the Jewish God. They were Greeks. They worshiped all of the gods of the Greek pantheon. Acts doesn't tell us how the first group responded to Paul's message. The Jews and devout persons, they drop out of the passage. But there's quite a conversation between Paul and the people who happened to be in the marketplace. Those Athenians were both confused and intrigued by the message Paul was preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. They were intrigued enough that they wanted to hear more. They were confused enough that they brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a, a public place where religious debates were held, religious discussions. There was also a council there that could judge whether these religious arguments had any merit, whether or not Paul should be allowed to continue spreading that message in the city. Starting at verse 22, then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the, ob at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now that might sound unremarkable, but I think there's something amazing about that. This series, Amazing Acts, we're looking at some of the amazing things that happened in the early church that allowed the faith to grow by leaps and bounds. It doesn't sound at first like there's anything amazing in this story. There's no miraculous healing, no dramatic jailbreak, there's no martyrdom, no appearance of angels, nothing particularly supernatural happens. But there is something amazing, nonetheless, when you look at the manner in which Paul went about testifying to the gospel here. Remember that Paul was disgusted by all the idolatry he saw throughout Athens. That's how the passage began, by saying he was deeply distressed that the city was full of idols. But Paul's repulsion at their idolatry is not what he focuses on here. He doesn't go on a harangue about the evils of all these false gods. He doesn't lambast the Athenians about how wrong they are, how lost they are. In fact, he starts off by complimenting them. He starts off by finding a place of connection with them. He recognized that by having an altar to an unknown god, the Athenians were aware that there was a mystery to the divine. Paul didn't say, I come declaring a new God. Instead, he told them, I've been sent to reveal the identity of the God you've been worshiping all along without even knowing it. 
knowing who he was. I've come to tell you about this unknown God so that you can know him, so that you can have a relationship with him, so that you can worship him in knowledge and in truth. I've come to reveal the mystery of the unknown God to you. Verses 26 through 28. From one ancestor... He made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. In none of this does he scold them in any way. He praises them for having searched for God. He tells them that God has set up the world so that they would search for him, so that in doing that, they've done exactly what God wanted. He affirms that their philosophers were correct when they stated that God is very near and that they, too, are God's progeny. And then he says... Now let me tell you the end of the story. And then he tells them about Jesus. He tells them about the resurrection. He says, let me explain to you how all the pieces fit together. And he presents the gospel to them in a way that respects who they are and that draws on what they already know. Yes, there is much that they don't already know, much to which they are ignorant, and that's why Paul has been sent to them. He doesn't shy away from the fact that there is more that they need to know for salvation. Listen to verses 30 to 31. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, God knows how the story ends because God is the author of the story. And in Jesus Christ, he has revealed the ending to all of us. It is no longer a mystery. Now we can see how it all ties together. Now we can see our part in it and what is expected of us. Our part, it's not simply to believe in God in a general sense and try to live a good life. That's a start. That's what everybody could figure out based on the clues of nature and conscience. But that alone is not enough because God's will is that we all become one with him and one with each other. And that is done only in Jesus Christ. Our part is to open ourselves to the living Christ. It is in him that sins are forgiven and that we are made righteous. It is in him that God's will for humankind is fulfilled. It is in him that our story is made perfect and we are made ready for eternity. One more verse of scripture this morning, going back to the letter that I started with, Colossians, just after Paul says the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations but has been revealed to his saints, he goes on to say this, to them, 
God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the answer to the mystery. Christ in you. Christ in you is what equips you for the struggles of this life. Christ in you leads you in the pathway you should go. Christ in you is what makes sense of life and pain and sorrow and joy. Christ in you is what puts to death the ways of sin and leads to eternal life, the hope of glory. Christ in you is what brings peace and salvation. This is a message, this is a hope that everyone needs to hear. But they need to hear it in a way that respects who they are and what they already know, not in a scolding and superior way, but in a way that celebrates the fact that God has already been at work within them, that there are questions and desires and needs within them that were placed there by God and which only God can answer. They need to hear in a, in a manner that reveals how Jesus is the answer to those questions and desires and needs that we all share. They need to know that Jesus really, truly is the good news that they have been searching for all along. I close with a quote from St. Augustine, an early father of the church. In his spiritual autobiography, The Confessions, he prayed, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. God has made us for himself. The restlessness that we feel when we are not resting in God, that is the clue God has placed within us of our deepest need. That deepest need within us is the mystery of the ages. And the answer is in Jesus Christ. Let us share that good news with others, that the, the answer to the mystery of life, the truth which brings it all together and makes it all make sense, Christ in us may be revealed to all.